The message that we have been going through in Colossians. The message is that if you and I don't prioritize Jesus in our life, we gut our faith. And we end up holding an empty bag. If you have religion without Jesus, you have an empty bag. It doesn't matter what religion it is. It can even be Christianity. And if you got Jesus out of it, you hold an empty bag. You are missing the heart of what faith is all about. Jesus, Colossians says, has always been, will always be. Jesus is, um, he has created everything that has ever been created. Jesus created you, formed you, and molded you. Jesus is what Paul says is preeminent or number one. He is, he, he is more important than anything else in all the world. He is preeminent. He is sovereign. He is the most important, and he is Lord of everything. Whether those things acknowledge that he is Lord or not doesn't make any difference. He is still Lord. Jesus is what it is all about, according to Paul in Colossians. So what difference does that make? Well, Paul says that if you and I are believers in Jesus, if we follow Jesus, it impacts and changes everything that we do. We begin to think about all of life from one point of view, from one question. Does this please Jesus? And so everything we do, we do to honor and to please Jesus. And if we are in a relationship that doesn't please him, then we need to change. If we're doing some behavior that doesn't please him, then we need to change. Everything boils down in life to this one question, does it please and honor Jesus? As if that is the only care in the world we have, whether we honor Jesus. Him. We begin to even care less about the consequences of our actions. If I am a Christian, if I have given my life to Jesus, I start to think, okay, it doesn't really matter what happens to me as long as this one thing is true. I'm pleasing him. If I get in trouble because I'm pleasing Jesus, it doesn't matter anymore because I'm pleasing him. If I hurt this relationship or they don't respond right to me, it doesn't matter as long as I'm right with Jesus. Jesus becomes the center of my life and everything revolves around him. In other words, if, if following Jesus causes me some trials, I'm okay with that. Because what I really want to do with my life is this one thing, pleasing 
Jesus. In our text today, Paul gets to the place where he starts talking about relationships. And the point he wants to make is this. If Jesus really is Lord, if Jesus really is the ruler, if Jesus really is king, if Jesus is who he says he is, then Jesus has to be the most important thing in every relationship I have. And the way I conduct myself in every relationship has to be in such a way that it pleases him and honors him. Now, that's a lot easier to preach than it is to live. (laughs) But that is what Paul says. That is what God is saying to us through Colossians today, that you and I do not get to pick and choose how we are going to relate to people. Jesus does. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus gets to choose how I relate to you and how I relate to this and how I relate to that situation. He gets to choose all of that. I don't get to choose that. I may want to choose. I may want to relate to this person on this way. I don't get to choose that anymore. I'm not my own. I belong to him. That's what Paul says today in Colossians. Listen to this passage. Because he gets real practical. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue in relationships that we have in our lives. I want you to hear just those first couple verses from uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, message. He says, Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honor the master. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Now, Paul is giving us a condensed version of several passage of scripture, one that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, another one that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. Those are longer passages, and um, they, they just expound on this quite a bit, but Paul gives us a very condensed version here, and consistent in all of those passages and regarding husbands and wives are two words. 
one to wives and one to men. Every passage has this in it. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. If you were to um, consider the whole context of these passages, um, you would understand that wives are never to be doormats. Husbands are never to be dictators. But both husband and wife are looking to live out God's will towards their spouse in the way they treat their spouse, by putting their spouse ahead of themselves. Now, the most important place for us to live out our Christian faith is in the home. I wish I had believed that even more in my younger days. The most important place for us to live out our Christian faith and the fact that Jesus is Lord is in the home. And oftentimes that is the most difficult place for us to live out our faith. The most challenging and trying place to live out our faith. Generally speaking, God has designed men with a need for respect and honor. And so when Paul says to wives and Peter says to wives, submit. Submission is about meeting that need and living in such a way that it builds them up and brings out the best in them without nitpicking or um, those kind of things that just kind of tear down uh, respect and honor, without talking uh, behind their backs negative things about them, that kind of thing. God wants um, wives to submit in, 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 in a way that brings respect and honor. And generally speaking, God has designed women in such a way that they need affection and affirmation and meaningful conversation and spiritual leadership in the home. And Paul says to men, and any woman that gets concerned about submission, and what Paul said about that, ought to just read what Paul says to husbands. Love your wife enough to die for her. Love your wife enough to die for her. That wipes out an awful lot of stuff that husbands do. (laughs) Those are incredibly convicting words. Love your wife enough to die for her, even when you're annoyed with her. That makes all the other sacrifices pretty small by comparison when you go to die for someone. (laughs) Because it is pretty amazing some of the things I get irritated with Priscilla for. Some of the small, petty things. 
And then I'm reminded that Paul says to love her enough to die for her. (laughs) In particular, Paul says that men are to avoid bitterness and harshness with their wives. It's not just in marriage, though, that you and I need to put Jesus first and treat our spouses in a way that pleases Jesus, but we need to bring that into the way we handle our children or our parents. Children, do what your parents tell you. This delights the master no end. Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. Children need to learn to obey their parents. They need to learn to obey their parents because if they don't, they will not learn to obey any authority on earth. And they will pay the consequences for that the rest of their lives. We are seeing a generation of of young people who have never been trained to obey And the consequences for them are severe. Any discipline, loving, good discipline that you give your children today will spare them from harsh discipline the world will give them later on. I don't know how else to say that. Children need discipline and direction and control, and they need it given in love. A firm hand of direction. How are they ever going to learn to obey God if they can't obey their parents? How will they ever learn to obey the law if they can't obey their parents? Now, having said that, your parents aren't always right. But you know what? And sometimes they won't deserve, sometimes you won't deserve your kids' obedience. But God always does. God always does. There was a couple who had two sons. I'm going to just pause for a little story here. They were eight and ten years old and they were very mischievous. They were always in trouble and it seemed like If there was something going on in town, the parents just knew that their sons had to be involved somehow or another. One day, a new pastor moved into town, and the parents heard that this pastor was particularly good in, in dealing with children and correcting behavior. And so the mother decided to go to this clergyman and, and talk to her and see if he would speak to her boys. And so... She did that, and he agreed to see them individually. And in the morning, she sent the 8-year-old, and then in the afternoon, she was supposed to send the 10-year-old. The clergyman did something, I don't know what he was thinking, really. But anyway, he was a huge man, had a booming, booming voice. And when the 8-year-old got there to the pasture, the pastor looked at him and sternly asked him this question, Where is God? The boy's mouth dropped open, 
And he didn't make any response. He just sat there with his mouth hanging open, staring wide-eyed at this huge, imposing figure of a pastor. And the clergyman then repeated his question with a little bit more force. Where is God? Again, the boy had no answer, made no attempt to answer. So the clergyman raised his voice a little bit more and shook his finger at the boy and bellowed, Where is God? The boy screamed and bolted for the door and left and ran all the way home. (laughs) He went home, went to his room, went to his closet, slammed the door shut and hid in the closet. The older brother found him a little bit later. Asked him, what happened? And the younger brother said, we are in big trouble this time. God is missing And they blame us. (laughs) Has nothing to do with the sermon. Children, they need warmth and control. Warmth and control, but so often we miss the mark. And I could I could give illustrations and examples of missing the mark on all quadrants here. (laughs) But um, we too often settle for less. And a lot of it has to do with the way we were raised and and backgrounds and all of that. And and hopefully every generation improves a little bit on the last generation. But there's there's some things here uh, that we need to know. There is warmth without any control. And so we love our children. We're kind of permissive and we just let them do whatever they want. But there's no control. There's no discipline. There's no boundaries for them. Or there's control, but no warmth. And that's legalism. And that's just a bunch of rules. And and pretty soon the kid doesn't know he's loved at all. But there's all these rules he's got to live by and they don't grow up to be healthy and and whole people. And then there's also this other option and that's no warmth, no control. That's basically parents who are missing in action. And, And they're not helping their kids at all. And so somehow or another we have to get to that point where there is this balance between warmth and control. And bringing both of them together, fathers um, in particular need to be available and affirming and assertive um, while avoiding criticism and ridicule and all of that, but really being there and, and having warmth there, love and affection along with discipline and control and all of that. A couple other things. You, you cannot teach children obedience. If there's an area in your life where you are not being obedient, if you expect your children to obey you and obey God and obey other things that they should obey, and you are being disobedient in one area of your life, your children are going to look at that. They're going to see that, and they're going to see that you have made an exception for obedience. And they're going to assume, well, I can make an exception, just like they do. 
and I choose to make my exception here, you may have chosen to make your exception over here. If we want to teach obedience to our children, we have to be obedient to God. We have to be obedient to our employers. We have to be obedient um, in all the different settings that we are in and in the authorities that are placed over us. You cannot teach obedience to children if you're not obedient in the realms in which you live uh, to the authorities to which you should submit to. I've mentioned this before um, in the last year, I think. But one of, one of the things that I learned uh, raising my own kids, hopefully they will do a better job of this than I did, but discipline is always for the sake of the child, not for your sake. Discipline is always for the sake of the child and not for your sake. One of the ways that you can know and you can figure out if you're disciplining for your own sake is if you're angry. If you're angry when you're disciplining, it's probably because you have something in here that you, you want this child to behave a certain way for your own benefit. Maybe you're embarrassed by their behavior. Or who knows what, or it, you know, their behavior is causing a conflict in your life, causing stress in your life, and so you're disciplining for your own sake instead of disciplining for their sake. Discipline always is done for the sake of the child. Always. And sometimes in my life it would have been better for me to back off until I could get to the place where I discipline for their sake instead of just disciplining for my own sake. And so we have to keep that in mind. And I, I just want to say to all of you, make sure that when you discipline someone else, that you're disciplining them for their sake, for their good, and not for your own good. Parents have a responsibility not to embitter their children, as the NIV, I think, puts it, or to provoke their children to wrath, I think, as the King James puts it. And there's a lot of other translations out there. But there's a lot of ways that we can embitter our children and provoke them. One of them is through inconsistency, where, you know, today one thing is fine, tomorrow it's not. And they can't quite figure out where we're at. Or another thing is, is really being permissive. You see children who are raised in permissive environments, and they're just lost. Because children were made, designed by God to have a certain amount of structure. And when we take that away from them, they don't know what to do with their life. Or legalism, where there's just always... They just can't make anyone happy all the time <laughs> because they're always doing something wrong. And this and that, we're always on their case and we're always critical and we're always judging and we're always ridiculing and they don't hear the affirmation. They don't feel the love. Another thing is being pawns between parents. And, you know, I think that's probably gotten worse in our culture. I think it's worse than it was 20 years ago 
where kids are kind of like, you know, a, a soccer table game. And they're kind of like the ball. And there's one set of parents over here, you know, dad's over here and he's turning and he's kicking the kid that way and mom's over here shuffling and kicking the kid back that way and they're both trying to score a point against the other one. That doesn't help any kid. So make sure when you're parenting, make sure when you're helping your own kids raise their kids, for some of you, Make sure that you don't place your kids and your grandkids in the the position of being the ball in the middle of the soccer table, being kicked back and forth. Mom says this, no dad says this, back and forth. Or grandparents say this, and the other set of grandparents say this, or who knows what it might be, but never place the kid as a soccer ball on the little table of a war between mom and dad. Paul goes on to say that our relationship with Jesus impacts our work relationships. And in his day, he was talking about slavery. He says, servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from your heart for your real master, for God. Confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The solemn servant does who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And masters, treat your servants considerately. Be fair with them. Don't forget for a minute that you too serve a master, God in heaven. There were 60 million slaves in Paul's day. 60 million of them. We tend to think of slavery um, from the slavery that we know from our American history and the stories we've heard and all of that um, in in pre-Civil War days. But the slavery that Paul talks about here in the New Testament was much less severe. But it was still slavery. The church didn't advocate. You won't find passages in Scripture that condone slavery in that environment because it was primarily interested in spreading the gospel rather than being known for what it was against. And it trusted that the gospel would change hearts and lives of people and eventually slavery would be run out. And indeed, they were right. So the message for us is that you and I need to put Jesus first in the way we handle our relationships with our spouses, in our families, and at work. We work to please Jesus first. And he always sees what we're doing and the manner in which we we do it. And we're supposed to work as unto the Lord. Now, as slaves were expected to work as serving Christ, then certainly every one of us is in one of those situations, um, if we are working, where we should be expected to serve as we are serving Christ. That means that we don't milk the clock. 
That means that um, we put our heart into our work, that we don't talk back. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to me that Paul goes so far here, I've not noticed this before, he says we live our in such a way at work, in our relationships at work, in such a way that we don't just work to avoid punishment or the consequences of not doing our job well, but we work to please Jesus while we are at work. Our first reward should not be our paycheck or this or that or something else, our first reward should come from knowing that you and I have pleased Jesus at work. But it's also interesting that in this text, Paul suggests that not only do we work well because we don't want to be punished for not working well, But he suggests that if we don't work well today here on earth, that not only will we face consequences for that here on earth, but that God is going to judge us for the way we worked in the judgment. Now, I've never really thought about my work relationships coming under judgment by God after I die. It's here. Christians ought to be the best workers the world has ever known. You ought to be the best employer, the best employee you can be. If you're an employer, you ought to be the best employer you can be. Not for your own sake, not for their sake, but for the sake of Jesus, because people know if you're a Christian or not. They know if you're real. And how you live your life at work makes a difference as to the credibility of your witness. The slave master was to be kind and considerate to his slaves. And so employers um, need to treat their employees as Jesus would treat them. And they need to run their businesses as Jesus would have them run their business. Now there's two things in this this passage that I want to talk about as we come to a close. First is this. That in every relationship that you and I have, Jesus wants to be the first consideration and the first concern in our life. The first concern in my life should not be how will Priscilla handle this? The first concern in my life should be what will Jesus think of the way I'm treating Priscilla? The first concern in my life with my children is not how they will respond to me. But what will Jesus think of the way I am handling my children? The first concern in my life should not be how 
uh, my children are, are going to relate to me. But for them, their, their question ought to be, am I pleasing Jesus in the way I'm responding to my parents? And the first concern at work should be not how the people at work respond to me, but how does Jesus think I'm doing there? How does Jesus want me to do there? Now, here's the second thing. Every one of us have a challenging relationship somewhere in our life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any of us that don't have a challenging relationship somewhere. And so today I want us just to pray that God will help us to surrender to Jesus in that relationship and ask him to help us to respond in such a way in that relationship that pleases Jesus, regardless of the cost and the consequences of that. We just want to please Jesus.